Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I want to introduce you in just a moment to Dr. Lynn Webster past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. And uh, you can go online and watch his film, ThePainfulTruthDocumentary.com, ThePainfulTruthDocumentary.com. Dr. Webster got in touch with me through his publicist at the beginning of the week, and he'd heard the interview with Dr. Philpott. And just before we talk to Dr. Webster, I just want to play back the first minute of that conversation. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that... Uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. So then why is all the talk about the painkillers instead of the pain? Well, I, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. I, I, I think this is a, an issue that has a whole range of perspectives on it and, and views, and I certainly uh, try to encourage people to uh, not oversimplify it and not... Uh, not see that uh, there's any one single story to uh, the issue of the fact that uh, we have uh, an overdose uh, epidemic in this country, but uh, you're absolutely right that part of the conversation has to be around the fact that uh, people uh, have pain and that they, if, if they do, that they deserve to get care for that pain. Now, you can listen back to the interview anytime. And uh, there are links on my blog, and just go to your favorite chorus radio station, where you listen to uh, this program, and you'll find the links in my uh, my postings. Dr. Lynn Webster, past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, and he's the producer of the film The Painful Truth Documentary. dot com, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Webster, I wanted you. Thank you for taking the time, and I wanted you to hear just the beginning of that interview with the with a federal health minister. Why did the blog piece and why did that interview particularly resonate with you? Well, first, Roy, thank you for asking me to participate. I, I, I'll tell you why. It's because I have been reading countless articles by journalists and watching uh, videos and listening to tapes that rarely do I hear the media um, and uh, good journalists challenge what is going on and representing or trying to advocate for a balanced approach, or even even speak up for the people in pain. So when I when I uh, read your review, actually your column, and then listened to your interview, I thought this is somebody that needs to be recognized and applauded for your efforts. So thank you. Well, uh, thank you. But what's what's important is that the the people who need the help and who get the help from the prescribed opioids after careful consultation with their doctors that they're not cut off and the doctors aren't intimidated. Tell me, please, is there a 
Did this crusade, and that's what I'll call it, did this crusade really begin with the Center for Disease Control in, in the United States? No. Um, I think that this crusade, if, you, if that's the right word, I think the campaign towards tr- reducing the amount of opioids in the country really started with the insurance companies in the U.S., and mostly with the workers' comp, um, tr- because it became, it became a very, very expensive um, uh, undertaking for them to be prescribing or paying for all of the pain medicines. And so um, there, was a, there was a concerted and, I think, um, uh, uh, large campaign uh, for the last several years, five, six years, to try to reduce the amount of uh, opioids prescribed. Now, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it, it, it works because uh, it's not just a cost issue, because they could, fo- they could point to the harm that uh, was occurring at the same time. So it was able, they were able to um, they quit, they point out to the potential risks and harms. And so it was able to get uh, a lot of people on board with that campaign. Yeah, and as I saw, I looked at the guide, the Canadian guide. I read all 84 pages of it, actually. And I spoke with the editor of the guide, and some of the information in that guide is absolutely just—it's—it's it's just not true. It's manipulated uh, manipulated information. For example, they can't tell me there's been an increase in the number of people who attend public clinics for opioid abuse in the province of Ontario between 2004 and 2015, and it's almost tripled. And when I asked him whether that is opioid patients or whether it's generic drug addicts. On, uh, on street corners who just happen to buy the opioids, they buy anything, it just happens to be opioids, and then they get treated for that. They, they couldn't tell me what the breakdown is, and my sense is the vast majority of them would be the generic street corner addicts, and if there are opioid patients who are street corner addicts, they're being driven there by this kind of policy that started, as you said, with the American insurance companies. Yeah, I think that you're, you're right that we do not understand the, the data very well, but it's very commonly conflated meaning that when when there are reports from the CDC or when there are reports in the media, we look at drug overdose deaths, and it may be 50,000, but they're not opioids. Not all of them are opioids. And uh, most of those deaths are with illicit drugs and non-opioids. They're not in people who have been prescribed the medicine for pain. Mm-hmm. And there's really li- hardly any data that helps us uh, uh, separate out those different groups. Yeah. And what they're going to do, what they'll accomplish, and it's already happening, as we'll hear later today, uh, they'll accomplish driving people to suicide. And, and then you'll have a potential suicide epidemic on your hands where, where chronic pain patients just say, I can't stand this anymore. I can't take it anymore. And my fear is when the first few suicides are publicized, it will cause other people to follow suit, and then what do you do? Right. There's already uh, substantial data that sh- is suggesting an increase in suicides. And frankly, many of the overdose deaths in the uh, population that were prescribed opioids for their pain were probably suicides, too. And that's because pain is so uh, unbearable for some people. They'll do whatever they have to to get out of pain. It's not as if they became, quote, addicted and overdosed while they were in pain because they were trying to get high. It's that sometimes they will get confused and take more medicine than they they should or safe, but the alternative to them is uh, unbearable also. Let me just tell you quickly uh, that when I was seeing patients and I was prescribing a lot of opioids, it 
I would often tell my patients that if you take more of this medicine than I tell you to take, you may not wake up. And countless times, patients would pause and say, Doc, that's okay. I cannot live with the pain I have. Wow. And so that's, now, yeah. we, if, if we are in a place where we're using arbitrary numbers to say that you should not exceed this amount if you're prescribing to somebody with uh, pain, and you have to reduce a dose that somebody's been functional on, working, having a reasonable life, um, is essentially forcing them to make terrible decisions. Yeah, life or death. Life and an death unbearable life. Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My guest is Dr. Lynn Webster, the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. His film is the PainfulTruthDocumentary.com, and we'll ask Dr. Webster about the film in just a moment. But Dr. Webster, before we, uh, before we do that, doctors, some have told me directly that they're afraid to prescribe medication that they know their patients require. Because, as one doctor said, I put 12 years into getting this license to practice medicine. I cannot afford to jeopardize it. And the pressure is being applied by the governing medical bodies and by the federal government and provincial governments, I'm sure. You experienced that pressure. They came after, the DEA came after you, didn't they? Well, they, yeah, they, uh, uh, they entered my office and uh, investigated our practice, uh, and it took four years for them to finally decide that um, there was nothing there. Uh, and, but you're right. I think today it's, I mean, that was back in 2010. Today it's much worse. Um, physicians uh, are, are feeling like if they prescribe or don't follow the CDC guidelines or the Canadian guidelines for prescribing that are the most conservative, that their license is in jeopardy, if, if not just their freedom, uh, and, and that they, they uh, can lose everything. And, you know, all you have to do is be accused of doing something, and you have to hire an attorney to help defend yourself. Um, you may be entirely right, but you can spend all of your retirement and fortune yeah. on it. Yeah, and I've heard, I've heard doctors say that. I just can't afford it. And I have a family, too. One doctor, I shouldn't say doctors, but I had one doctor specifically say to me, I have a family, and, and I have to take care of that family. Can't afford to lose my license. What's your, t- t- tell us, please, what the film is about. Uh, the film is really about the, the problem of pain. Um, and tr- I, I try to give people in pain a voice. It's really about patients and their struggles of being heard. And, uh, and getting access to treatment and our health care systems that have failed us, the legal system that's failed us, the flaws within the, um, uh, the DEA and the CDC that's contributed to our current crisis. But frankly, it's just about people in pain being ignored, um, castigated, you know, stigmatized, and the association with the opioids has just accelerated that. So as we have developed this problem with opioids, and it's a real problem, um, even in the pain populations, there's a subset of people for whom the opioids are very dangerous, uh, that no one really talks or gives much attention to the people in pain. So the documentary is to talk about all of the issues of why we are where we are and what the people in pain are struggling uh, to deal with. Okay, the pain, uh, painful uh, truth documentary. Dot com. Can, can politicians and researchers bent on denying 
massive pain-relieving opioids for chronic pain patients, for whom it's proven uh, it, it's, it's successful, can they be stopped? Can the politicians be stopped? Yeah, can this, can this whole agenda be stopped? Well, I, th- I hope so. Um, I, I hope so. I think that's why I, I produced, uh, co-produced this documentary. That's why I've written my book. That's why I'm talking to you and why I applaud what you've been doing. I'm hoping that if enough people speak up um, and that uh, they tell the stories about people in pain, acknowledging that we have an addiction problem, that, that's a serious problem too, and we need to address that. Uh, but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. We can't ignore a huge part of our society uh, at the expense of trying to treat a different part of society. We yeah. can do both. And if the pain patient who handles the opioids well needs to be on them for the rest of his or her life in order to manage the pain, so what's the problem, I said to the minister. Well, she, she didn't there, have an answer. There, yeah, yeah, I heard you ask her that question. There is no problem. I mean, if you have uh, chronic pain is... A, a chronic disease, just like diabetes and heart disease, right. blood pressure, and when you're started on those medicines for diabetes or heart disease, you're often on those the rest of your life. This is true for chronic pain as well. Dr. Webster, God bless you. Thanks very much for joining us, and thanks for doing what you do. Thank you. Do you mind if we call okay. you another time and get you back on the Please, show? Please, I'd be glad to I'd be glad to join you. All right, we'll, we'll definitely do that. Dr. Lynn Webster. Past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. His film is the Painful Truth Documentary. By the way, you can stop them. There's a million and a half of you. There's not nearly as many of them. You can stop them. The politicians are easy to stop. They're all about votes. That's a lot of votes. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Don Ray Daunton joins me, journalist, writes for this country's major publications, including the Globe and Mail, where she wrote um, great column. And the, the, the headline is, I don't use fentanyl to get high. It lets me live without chronic pain. Hi, Don Ray. So as you listen to Minister Philpott, what were you thinking? I was thinking what a great politician she is, how she's able to fill up a whole lot of air and say absolutely nothing. I was also thinking what a typical doctor she is. She is a a family physician, as I think we all know by now. My experience of family physicians is that they know next to nothing about pain. Um, I think that they got perhaps four hours of, uh, of training on pain in med school. Uh, so I think that what Jane Phil- Philpott brings to the table is the, vacu- the vacuity of a politician, but also of a doctor who thinks she knows something about pain, but in fact knows nothing. You, you said you cried when you heard the interview. I did. I was one of those criers. Um, you know, I, I really want to say that I'm grateful to be speaking with you. I am a freelance journalist. I have been for most of my adult life. I'm a person who knows how to navigate the media. I'm a person who's pitched lots of stories, hundreds of stories over the year. I have never pitched a story that found less traction than this one with any media outlet in Canada. Um, so to, to have heard you um, speaking to Phil Pot, yeah, it, it, made me, it made me cry. It was kind of a, a mixture of relief and astonishment that someone who, as I understand it, is not himself a pain patient, is a media person who has grasped the essence of what chronic pain patients are subjected to these days in Canada. I was so um, 
I was so thrilled that I cried. And I just want to say that I'm grateful on, on, on behalf of not only me, but every chronic pain patient that's out there, out there, every doctor who treats chronic pain patients with this gloom over them now that they may have their licenses pulled, and also every advocate that works for pain patients. We're, we're grateful to you because we're not being heard by other media. Well, it's, it was a perfect opportunity because they called me with the intent of putting me in my place. Didn't quite work out that way. They should have known better, I think. Maybe. Your chronic pain was caused by what? And what's the impact it has on your life? And beyond the fentanyl patches, if you didn't have the fentanyl patches, what would your life be like? Um, my chronic pain um, was caused about 20 years ago, um, just an idiopathic presentation, an unknown cause presentation of a kind of uncommon form of arthritis called sacroiliitis. It starts in your lower back and it works, it eats its way down one leg and then it eats its way across your lower back and down the other leg. And it's, a, it's an inflammatory process. It's, it carries incredible pain with it. Um, I lived with it for a few years until I finally got into a pain clinic. I think the wait down here for a pain clinic was four years mm. at that point. I think it's probably about the same today, and there are fewer pain clinics now in, in the Maritimes than there ever have been. Um, so when I did get into a pain clinic and eventually got on fentanyl, my life improved immeasurably. I was no longer waking up in the middle of the night with a shrieking pain in my back and just baring my teeth, gritting my, piece, my, my teeth, counting down the seconds until I could turn over. I knew I had to turn off my back to stop the pain. I also knew that in turning off my back onto my hip that the pain would swell for an instant. That was what I was going through. When I, when I was treated... I began to come back to life. I think when you have severe chronic pain, um, it's a little different than our prime minister thinks it is. He, he, he told Vice Canada uh, last month that chronic pain was low-grade and very annoying. I think he's never experienced any. That's all I have to say about him. So it, it's, it, when you have severe chronic pain, the world collapses just to that pain. That's all that is in your world. And you realize right away it's pointless to remain there. So to your question, what would my life be like without fentanyl? Roy, I wouldn't have a life. I would be dead. I would have taken my life. I, I'm, I'm quite clear on that. And if I, have, if I go to a place soon or in the future where I don't have my pain treated, I will take my life. My suicide plan is in place. My note is written. My family is aware of what I'm going to do. My husband knows that he's to take my note to the media, try and get as much coverage for it as possible, and I will name names, and I will start with the health minister. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with Dawn Ray Daunton and, uh, and we'll talk to her more about, about her pain, about the chronic pain she's living with, about the um, our minister and pr prime minister. Yeah. Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, the Dr. Justin Trudeau said, chronic pain is low grade, very annoying. No, we weren't talking about you, prime minister. We're talking about chronic pain. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I uh, posted a link on my Twitter account at The Roy Green Show to Don Ray Downton's column. I don't use fentanyl to get high. It lets me live without chronic pain. Don Ray Downton joins us from Halifax. In, uh, in your letter to Philpot, you write... Uh, Don Ray, just mentioned this before the break. I'm not going quietly. I'm naming names. Yours tops the list. All the more shameful for you being a physician. So uh, let's speak to that. And share with us as well, please, what the relationship with your family physician of 25 years turned out to be. 
Well, it turned out to be a bust-up because she put her interests ahead of my own, and I believe that she took an oath when she began to be a doctor not to do that. She took an oath first to do no pain, do no harm. I'm sorry, first do no harm. What she did was pain. Um, So she just uh, called me in at the beginning of the year uh, at the height of the craze about the opioid epidemic, and she said um, uh, that she had to uh, uh, follow the, the college's instructions and that I would be reduced um, on my fentanyl dose by as much as 80 to 90 percent. Um, and she was unwilling to, um, to, to change her mind about that in any way. I was lucky. Um, I haven't actually been reduced because I had the backup of a pain clinic down here. The pain clinic was making recommendations to my family doctor, and she was writing prescriptions. So I was able to go back to the pain clinic and say, my family doctor is now out of the picture. Can you write prescriptions for me directly? And they, they said, fine, they could do that. However, um, I had to suffer the humiliation of signing a contract um, with the pain clinic, um, saying really outrageous things like I would agree to be drug tested at any time, which is against the law. The Supreme Court has ruled on that, um, that I would, uh, if for any reason I had to renew my prescription early, um, for, for any reason, if I had to renew my, my prescription early, I wouldn't have it renewed. I thought, my God, what if my house burns down? What if I'm robbed? I mean, I, can't, I, I, I felt I couldn't sign off on that. My doctor, who hates the whole idea of what's going on with this, my doctor at the pain clinic said, make any changes you want, um, strike out anything you want. So I did. I struck out all kinds of things. And at the bottom of the contract, I wrote, I'm signing this um, under pressure. And, you know, I'm, not that it's going to make any difference, but... Um, I, I just felt humiliated, and I would I would point out that the way that many chronic pain patients have experienced things is is that they are blamed for their condition. I, I picked up from my doctors, not my pain doctors, but just you know other doctors in my life. I picked up pretty immediately that they had no appreciation for for pain, for chronic pain, and that that somehow they thought it was my fault or that I was making too big a fuss about it. And I learned just to stay quiet about it. I learned that I would have better treatment if I didn't make a fuss about it. And I I think that pain patients are put in that defensive position far too much. And I think that they're going to be put in that position more and more as time goes by because Mm -hmm. one of the most horrifying aspects of this of Ottawa's war on pain patients is that new doctors are coming out of med school bragging about how they're never going to put a, a patient on, on opioids, particularly fentanyl. I think that's horrible. We're, we're, we're issuing a whole new generation of doctors who will not have the best tools for chronic pain management at their fingertips or even possibly acute pain management at their fingertips. I think it's horrifying. Yeah, there is an agenda because they had that opioid summit in Ottawa that was staged by Dr. Phil Pott, the Minister of Health federally, and her Ontario counterpart, who's also a doctor who has not contacted me about being on the program. I'd love to talk to him and have you on with me when he does, if he does. But they had this opioid pain summit, and who did they invite, as you point out, to as we've talked about, addiction specialists were welcomed, but pain specialists and their patients, they were not welcome to attend. They were told, watch it on a webcast. Yeah, that's right. They were barred, basically, from the proceedings. And when I read about this, I, I, I keep hearing that they were two pain patients who spoke. Well, in fact, there, weren't, there were two pain patients in the audience. Um, the, um, the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society, which is a group of pain doctors, um, managed to get into the conference, but she's I, I think she's kind of been taken over by the other side. If this I is Dr. Campbell? Um, this is Dr. Fiona Campbell. Yeah, she's been yeah. on this program on this issue, too. Right. 
right, yeah. right. And and I, I think that she's gradually started to distance herself from the plight that chronic pain patients and their doctors find themselves in now. Um, I, I think doctors are put in a, in a very unfortunate position here. They rely a lot on government funding to do research. Often clinics, pain clinics, will hire clinicians on the basis of having money um, from, for research grants, and so they'll have staff that are carrying out research and also treating patients. And, and so they, they really count on having government funds available and sometimes even industry funds. And, and, and yet we accuse them of having conflicts of interest when this is, in fact, the only way that they can have enough resources mm-hmm. to take care of pain patients. I spoke at the beginning of the program with Dr. Lynn Webster. He's the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, and he's the co-producer of the PainfulTruthDocumentary.com. He was investigated by the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States for four years because he prescribes opioid uh, pain medication to his patients with appropriate warnings about what to do, what not to do. And then the DEA dropped the investigation, which doesn't happen all that often. But uh, there, there, is, um, there, there is a real concern, and you're absolutely correct. I've heard this as well, that young doctors who are coming out of med school, they don't have a sense of what chronic pain is, and they do have uh, a feeling that it's their obligation to, to not prescribe opioids. It's like this, this whole anti-opioid issue. Oh, Dr. Webster also pointed out that it was the insurance companies in the United States that were paying out major claims for opioid costs that started to drive the drop the opioids agenda, which was picked up by the CDC and now has become a mission in Canada. Uh, there, there were young doctors who, who've been just so inured with this message. And the, we, if I'm going to give the governments and the, and the, and the uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to say something they don't like, the walking lab coats, any, uh, any credence, it, it's they've been, able to sh- they've been able to extend their tentacles everywhere everywhere. And of course, as a media person, what distresses me the most is how much we depend on the media to to think we know what's true about things. And when we hear night after night on the news about the latest um, fentanyl death, about the fentanyl epidemic, the fentanyl crisis, whatever it is, then we come to believe that there's a fentanyl epidemic, that there's a fentanyl crisis. When in fact, if you look at the numbers, sure, there are addicts dying on the streets of fentanyl or whatever it is, but they are not pain patients. There is very little to to no evidence that chronic pain patients and their medications have anything to do with uh, addicts on the street dying of fentanyl overdoses. There was, for example, a study done recently of just under 40,000 post-op patients in Ontario um, to find out how many of them were on opioids a year after their surgery. The number was 0.4%. Those, those, of those 0.4% patients, most of them were thoracic surgery patients. Thoracic surgery, apparently, I hope I never have to have any, um, is, uh, is one of the most painful um, post-op conditions, surgical conditions you can have. It's notorious. And uh, so those people who were still on their opioids a year later were probably on their opioids for pain not to get high. There's tremendous confusion among doctors in particular and the media about um, whether or not uh, people are addicted when they're on opioids. They are, they, they are physically tolerant of their opioids, pain patients are, but they're not drug-seeking. They're not taking opioids to get high. I've been on fentanyl for 12 years. I asked my husband the other day, have you ever seen me high? He said, hardly, no, more like low. Um, you, pain patients are just not getting high on pain meds. When, when you take them for pain, you don't get high. You get less pain. And that's what it's about. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. 
Uh, Don Ray, I hope you'll come back because we need to keep speaking about this and we need to apply pressure and, and provide, I think, uh, opportunity, open the gate for the pain patients in this country to say, no, you're not going to do this to me. And think, in, you know, in huge wanna, numbers wanna... to fight back. A lot of pain patients have been um, discouraged by their doctors yeah. to speak out. Um, I was told to be discreet. My, my pain doctor won't really approve of what I'm doing, right. but I will continue to speak out, so I will be available. Sure, I'd love to speak again. Okay, we'll definitely do that. Thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you, Roy. All the best to you. You too. Dawn Ray Downton, and uh, read her Globe and Mail column. Just go to at the Roy Green Show on Twitter, and uh, I posted it there just uh, about 20 minutes ago. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I first heard from uh, my current guest in 2010. He sent me an email about a Haitian child he and his wife had adopted. And at that time, Canada was not going to allow their adopted daughter and entry into this country. And so we exchanged a few emails and uh, Vaden Earl decided, and he's a Canadian author, best-selling author, NGO worker, and he uh, decided they would maybe not go public and just see what they could accomplish, working through the appropriate channels. And we were in contact with each other again in 2015, just before the election. And um, here we are again in 2017, but today we're talking about the situation. Vaden, thank you for, thanks for coming on and talking about this. I, I've been reading about your, your daughter, Whitlene, little girl, pretty little girl who's got a family in Canada, loving adoptive parents, orphaned uh, in Haiti, and she can't get into the country, and Mr. Harper's government and now Mr. Trudeau's government, neither one of them, doing anything to help. Yeah, that's uh, that's an understatement, Roy. So, take us back to the beginning. How did you how did you discover? How did Whitlene come into your life? I was um, we were running an NGO, like you mentioned earlier, and we're based out of the Hamilton area. And a large part of what we did was we would take teenagers to developing countries and participate in humanitarian trips. One of the things that we did, our larger projects, was in Dominican Republic. Dominican is obviously a safe place to take Canadian youth, but it's also got that abject poverty that we can expose them to and, and make a difference. Part of our project was in a garbage dump. So we would take an afternoon and bring all of our, our student participants, 70 or 80 kids, out to a garbage dump where there sometimes was between you know 80 and 100 Haitians that lived and worked around that garbage dump. And they would dig through the garbage for recyclables to make you know maybe a buck a day uh, or for food left over from the resorts that was thrown in the garbage to eat. And uh, we noticed we'd been going there for years, and we, we see people there all the time. But a lady stepped out that kind of jumped out to our attention when uh, we saw she had a little toddler on her hip while going through all this, this garbage. And that little toddler is with me. So that's how we first met her and uh, fell in love with this little girl and would go back and forth and see her and hang out with her and I would every time we did the garbage dump trip, I would I would hold her and uh, you know try and get out of doing some work and actually just hang out with the kid. And um, as it turned out, her mother passed away. And when her mom passed away, uh, the guardianship kind of passed on back to the grandmother. And the grandmother, who we just spent six hours with again this morning here today, uh, she couldn't feed her, so she sent her back to Haiti. And 
and in Haiti, kids that are orphaned at that age, their fate is almost always household servants. So she was basically about to be sold as a slave. So we talked to the grandmother and, and asked if she would consider signing off an adoption. She said, absolutely, yes. So Wadim was brought back to the Dominican Republic, and we started the process. And that was, believe it or not, this week upcoming on the 15th of June, that will be the eight-year mark that we started okay. the process. Didn't the prime minister say something about people who needed Canada should just come here? I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. It's a great soundbite. It's a great soundbite. But in reality, with Woodling, it's not happening. So you so you adopted this little girl. How old was she at the time? We initially uh, took guardianship of her. She was four and a half years old. We started an official adoption process, and we had an MP and the current, at the time, Minister of Immigration on our side. And they said, we're going to do it. Go get her. Take her into your home. Do what you got to do. In 12 weeks, she'll be in Canada. We'll so, now, th- this was your home in the Dominican Republic? Yeah. So okay. we had a place in, in Dominican because we're spending a lot of time here. Right. So they said, get her out of harm's way, get her where she's safe, in your home in DR, and in 12 weeks, we'll have her in Canada. That was seven years ago. That Yeah, eight years ago. Eight years ago. And you're in the Dominican Republic right yeah. now as we're speaking to each other. That's right. I'm calling you from Dominican Republic. So, Mr. Kenny, if I recall correctly, Jason Kenny, when he was the immigration minister, didn't he speak very positively about this happening for you, that that this was going to take place? Very positively, yeah. Uh, Jason gave us his word that this would get done. And nothing was done. Here we are. Nothing was done. What, what? They, they, they got into it. Yes, they got into it, but then they bailed. Uh, after the earthquake got complicated and things got sticky and it wasn't a, a cut-and-dry thing anymore. And the the weird weird thing I heard, I mean, uh, it started to even say this. Uh, speaking to the Minister of Immigration's office, we had Widlene in our home, and Widlene had a, a loving home, and she had a school to attend. She had meals. She had food, which she didn't have before. And, and they said it didn't look good politically that they go out of their way to rescue someone who now has got all the, you know, the trappings of first world culture. So they, they actually said, why don't you send her back to the orphanage in Haiti for a while? Then we'll step in. Then it looks much better. Are these people insane? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. So you have this little girl. You've adopted her. Clearly, you love her. You and your wife love yeah. her. She has parents. She's got to be happy. She's got to love both you and your wife. And on the one hand, you're told she's going to be in Canada in 12 weeks. And then the earthquake happens. And then the government looking out for a political advantage. This is disgusting. They say to you, well, um, it doesn't look polit- politically good for us to bring her in quickly. So... Take her back to the orphanage in, in Haiti for a while, and then we'll step in and we'll look like the good guys. And they actually say that. Right, and, and you know the crazy part of that, they, they actually said that, and the crazy part of that is the whole premise of how we were going to get her to Canada was going to be on a human rights visa. So the idea that 
she she no longer was having her human rights violated, didn't sit well with them. So they needed her human rights to be taken away once again so it played better in the media. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely asinine. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get back to Vaden Earl and um, joining us from the Dominican Republic. He has an NGO there, non-governmental agency organization, and uh, he and his wife have adopted this little girl, Whittling, Haitian immigrant, um, orphan, and not allowed to enter this, into this country of ours. You've heard the first part of the story. And uh, Vaden, what, is, what does Whittling say about, about wanting to come to Canada, about you know, wanting to be with you guys in Canada? What did she say? It, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> we, the first time when we were given the green light that she'd be going, we painted a bedroom in our house. We bought a car seat. We did all the things you do when a kid's coming to your home. And, and we, we tried after, after that first letdown, we kind of got to the finish line a second time. And uh, after that, we just kind of had to try and manage our expectations because I think to her now, Canada is, is like uh, Narnia. It's some place out there that I know exists, but am I ever really going to get there? I don't know. So we're trying to, you know, temper those expectations. But th- at this point now, she's starting to really get excited again because I told her I'm not going to let this go. I mean, if, it, if, it, if i got to go and knock on, on Trudeau's door in Ottawa myself, that's going to happen. We're going to get this done this time. Wow. It deserves to be done. And we'll tell people how to how they can help. Actually, they can go to bringwidleenhome.com, right? And the info, info is there. Right. Yeah, it's all there. So go to bringwidleenhome.com. Um, yeah, and they're also on there, there's a proposal that we put on Minister Hussein's desk. Yeah. He's reviewed that multiple times, and that actual proposal with the actual cover letter is on that website as well. All right. So this is the new immigration minister, Ahmed Hussein. What so what is what is right. what is Hussein's office say? If he's looked at it personally, and uh, and and so he's the minister. He sees the story of this little girl. He knows that she's a Haitian uh, orphan. He knows she's been uh, adopted by uh, loving Canadian parents. Does he not have the uh, smarts to figure out to, um, you know, that she should be home, that, that Kenny and the Conservatives blew it and they can fix this? Doesn't he understand that? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that because I know it's, it's been through his office. I've kept, my, my records say that it's been, they've seen it 14 times. 14 times, meaning twice by immigration lawyers, twice by lobbyists and bureaucrats on the Hill, and 10 times by N- MPs, actual MPs, walked it over and put it in their department. I don't know. I mean, I can't say that I can confirm that Hussein has seen it with his own eyes or if it's just getting clogged up with his staffers. But you've got to think at some point when actual MPs, even some from his own party, are bringing it to him, you've got to think it's actually been seen by his own eyes. I, well. would, I, I would think so. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you'd hope so. I mean, if we're that efficient, if, if we're literally that inefficient, then we got bigger issues. But uh, that that proposal has been through, I've gotten it through now about 50, between 50 and 60 MPs have seen it. And almost all of them have forwarded on to immigration on some level, whether it just be a, a memo, an email, or walking it right over to their office. And they're giving the same ridiculous answers that it's all cut and paste. It's like, Thank you for showing your interest in immigration. Thank oh, you my for God. being willing to adopt 
we'll get back to you. Don't call us. We'll call you kind of junk. And when we're next in town, we'll call you. That's the sort of thing they send. Like yeah. So, yeah. Um, so is, is Whitleen living with you and your wife now in the Dominican Republic? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Whitleen is, is, has been full-time in our care for eight years now. But if you come home, she can't come with you. That's correct, which is why I haven't come home. <laughs> yeah, she can't come. I don't know what to say. I mean, it goes far beyond stupid, idiotic, mindless, brainless. It goes beyond you can't outthink those who aren't thinking. This is just, I can't think of the word that, that properly describes well, Roy, the buffoonery that's going on in that place with successive governments. It's unbelievable. And yeah, and, and we got to stand, I mean, I, you, I'm sure you, you see all the speeches that happen on the Hill. Oh, yeah. And we had Freeland just gave a speech the other day, um, the, you know, the whole address that she gave about Canada not wanting to be the world's policemen, but we're going to be the ones that are going to step up when the U.S. Sure. closes their doors. We're going to kick our borders open. And all the, all the platitudes and all, the, all the, the giant aerial kind of global sweeping statements. And, and there's about 10 quotes in that speech that if they were getting done, would lean would be in Canada. They're just not getting done. They're great sound bites, and the speech was great. And I actually stand by 90% of the speech, even from my own political standpoint. But the fact is saying it and having a great speech and doing it apparently are two very different things. I was on your blog earlier today, and I just want people to understand something here. You wrote that uh, Haitians are no longer necessarily um, terribly well-liked for being in the Dominican Republic after the earthquake, but you also wrote about the dogs in the Dominican Republic and how they live well, the stray dogs. They live well because people from restaurants feed them their leftovers from their meals. Uh, locals feed them the meals. These dogs live a pretty good life. And so you were having lunch, I think, with some friends. And and there were these three dogs waiting for something to be tossed their way. And uh, two two men were standing sort of closer closer to the restaurant than seemed normal. They didn't look like they should be there. This is I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. And, uh, and then somebody at the table takes a piece of chicken and flips it to the dogs. Well, the dogs are all excited because they're going to get their, their lunch. And one of the two men races the dog for the piece of food that's been tossed to the dog. He gets it before the dog. The other guy, and another piece of meat has been tossed to a dog, the one to the dogs. That guy's not as fast. The dog gets it. So he wrestles the dog to get the piece of meat out of the dog's mouth. And then he eats what's left. That breaks your heart. It's it's yeah. it's terrible to read. And that I mean, I I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. So, so you want to bring your little girl home? And I'm not knocking the Dominican Republic, um, but there's no reason with stuff like that going on. There's no reason for would lean not to be home with you. This is just it's awful. So what do you want people to do? And we have about thirty seconds. Uh, well, at this point, number one, uh, contact your MP. I mean, that's certainly the, the first thing we want everyone to do. Right. Okay. Um, contact the MP. Get on that website. There's a petition on there to sign. Okay. Those two things, I believe, will will spark some. All right, and this conversation won't hurt either. Uh, Vaden, we'll no, stay in touch. We'll stay in touch, and uh, we'll keep up to date, and we'll talk again. BringWhitleyInHome.com. Vaden Earl, thanks for the time. We'll get your little girl home.
all of us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, It's almost a year, almost exactly a year, since Robert Hall, a Canadian, was abducted and tortured and beheaded in the Philippines by the Islamist terror group Abu Sayyaf almost exactly one year ago. And that's going to be spoken to in Canada's parliament this coming week as the petition, the electronic petition of uh, from Robert Hall's family is going to be, E696, is going to be presented in parliament. And it makes specific requests of the federal government. And you may recall that Mr. Hall and uh, John Ridsdale, they were both abducted by Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. And they were both beheaded. And our government did nothing. Absolutely nothing. We were told, already been told on the air, there was opportunity that uh, Canada Special Forces were standing by, American forces were standing by, Philippine forces were standing by, ready to bust into where these two Canadians were being held. Uh, There was another individual who had been kidnapped. He apparently has been returned home because... His country paid a ransom, and uh, Mr. Hall's girlfriend was there as well. She has also been allowed to leave. But um, the Philippine uh, forces, we were told, had lost about 50 fighters, 50 men of their military, in securing uh, access to this particular base where the Abu Sayyaf uh, Islamist terrorists were holding on to the two Canadians. And it went to the desk of Mr. Trudeau, our prime minister. And Mr. Trudeau did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Bernice Thomas is the sister of Robert Hall. Gord Bibby is Mr. Hall's cousin. They join me from British Columbia. Bernice, how are you today? I'm well. <clears throat> I'm well, Roy. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you as well again. It's mm-hmm. the things that have to be done. Gord, it's, it's great to uh, be back on with you, and thanks for reminding me of, of the specific and important dates and things we need to talk about as far as your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale are concerned, and the rest of this country, people who travel. Well, you're very welcome, Roy, and thank, thanks again for having us on. Uh, yeah, it, it's a dangerous world out there, and, and I'm sure that uh, Canadians, it's just a matter of time, Canadians once again will be kidnapped in some far-off land, and if the government handles those particular incidents as they handled uh, both John and, and Robert's uh, situations, uh, it's 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 tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Well, remind us, please, of what uh, what they didn't do, of what they could have done. Is what I said uh, essentially uh, correct? Uh, is that information, first of all, factual? Uh, Bonnie may be better, more articulate on that than myself, uh, Roy. Okay, Bonnie. Um, well, I guess you know. Nothing's been done. Nothing's been done. Let's okay. just say that out the gate. And um, and the thing is, uh, we don't even know what was done. Uh, we don't know, for instance, if was there talk of sanctions? Was there, you know, I, I know I keep harping on this, but was there ever really a serious conversation about, about rescue? We know that they didn't... Uh, the Canadian government really didn't put any any shoulders behind this and and make any effort to attempt any kind of uh, of, of release or rescue for for Robert and John. They had the opportunity, did they not? Yeah. They had that. They had the chance to get involved 
in, in the kidnappings of your brother and, uh, and, and Mr. Ridsdale as well. They had the opportunity to get involved. And, and if not, as, as you sent an email to me, uh, they, if they weren't going to lead, at least they had the opportunity to participate and assist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they did nothing. And, and, and yeah, and the, the um, sort of one of the most burning questions for me, Roy, is I, ju- I just, for heaven's sakes, I want to know why these decisions were made, uh, because they were the only decisions, the only decisions that were made through this whole thing was to not allow any sort of an attempt to release or rescue uh Robert and John, and it's not because we didn't have the means or the ability, as you said at the at the top of the program. I mean, the United States were standing by. We had JTF two standing by. Um, uh, the the Philippine military was doing everything they could to sequester these guys and get them in a in a in a within striking distance, basically. And and we've we've never received sort of any logic as to why you wouldn't why you wouldn't do why we wouldn't sign off on on doing the best we can and get involved and engaged and you know we've got jtf2 joint task force 2 the uh national counterterrorism special forces unit the americans and the philippine military and really the buck stops with the guy in the pmo that's right and he's he's he stated uh, at a, in his end-of-year uh, sort of statement uh, he, when he was talking about the lowest day of the poor li- little lad's life was was the day that both John and Robert were murdered. Um, but, but in that speech, I mean, he took full responsibility. He said, I was responsible for, for articulating and directing the process of this hostage taking, and and so the buck does stop with him. And and give me a reason. Give me one reason. And and not to condemn him for the reasoning, but learn from our mistakes and let's get it together and not make those mistakes again. Because let's not forget, there's still Canadian citizens as we're speaking today that are being held hostage, and. Who, what's going to happen with them? Joshua Boyle? I mean, come on. Canada's got to get it together. And and it starts with asking hard questions of the Prime Minister. What were you thinking? You in the, the petition specifically asks for the formation of a specific unit to deal with these situations. Explain that to us. What is, what is the petition asking the government to do? Well, well I, I... the... Well, go, go ahead. Go, go. No, you go ahead. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I, I think basically it's it's just that uh, in the case of a of a hostage incident that there is a uh, uh, a strategy, uh, an organization that can be pulled to be- together very very quickly with experts in various fields such as uh, mediation, uh, uh, working in uh, foreign countries, jungles, and that type of thing. Uh, and victim victim advocacy, uh, just just there's a there's a procedure that that can be followed uh, to uh, properly affect uh, uh, keeping the families informed of what's going on, and and hopefully hopefully bring uh, you know bring them, bring the, the Canadian citizens home. Uh, it, it, as ghoulish as it may sound, 
uh, I think personally, and I only speak for myself here, personally, had there been a rescue attempt and either or both John and Robert were, were killed in that, in that action, I would feel much better than I do now that, that, that it was just uh, everybody was just sort of standing by with their fingers crossed. And the only, the only message that was going to these terrorists was that Canada does not pay ransom. And that is, you know, Roy, that's, that's no incentive for any future actions by, by terrorists. No. Uh, and, and had there been a rescue attempt, even an unsuccessful one, I, I think terrorists would know in future that if you're going to kidnap Canadians, uh, there will be some uh, reprisals. Yeah, that would been that would have been a very strong message, and and uh, one assumes we know what JTF two is capable of. I mean, I've talked to military people who said they're among the three or four best special forces units in the world. That's right. And uh, and the Americans are not too shabby either. And and the and the Filipino military, the Philippines military, they know their country, they know the people, they know they know how to operate within their borders, and they cleared what they needed to clear in order to make an assault possible. And so nothing is done. And what really compounds the issue is that the families have been kept in the dark. And it's uh, uh, in that year, because it's Tuesday, is the one-year anniversary of the death of uh, of your brother and your cousin. That's right. And, and, and the families are no closer to knowing what, what went on. It's awful. And, and that's, uh, you know, the, the only information that, that actually that has come out of that is through the work of some very uh, tenacious and... Uh, uh, journalists and uh, and reporters that have gone in and actually done some digging and uh, and basically they're just saying you know Canada really botched it they absolutely botched it well it's the same thing that uh, that we've heard and we were told on the air that uh, Canada just botched it and the guy in the corner office in Parliament I, you don't have to say it I will uh, he could he could and should have done more it was there for him to uh, to to act and he chose not to do it now why you don't know what's going on, why you haven't been brought up to date, kept up to date, is significantly important. And I know, Benice, that you want to speak about the issue of uh, public inquiry or an inquiry, an official inquiry. So let's do that when we come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Benice Thomas is the sister of Robert Hall. Gord Bibby is Robert Hall's cousin, one of two Canadians kidnapped and murdered in the Philippines by... Abu Sayyaf, the uh, terrorist group. Tuesday will be one year, and uh, petition E-696 will be presented in Parliament, and it calls on the federal government to have a specific unit in place to deal with all aspects of kidnapping of Canadians. Um, Bernice, you've never heard from the federal government any particular reason why they didn't take action, You've really been kept, the families have been kept in the dark, correct? Um, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've heard through, you know, pundits and, and basically hearsay, things like sovereign country, we can't invade a sovereign country. Uh, they actually, that the Philippines said no, they didn't want Canada in there. But these, this is all hearsay. It's, it's, it's not accurate. The most accurate things we've heard are that, indeed, the Philippines were clearing, they were trying to strategize, and so, so yeah, we've nothing to clear, Roy. And, 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 and you were actively discouraged from engaging in any ransom 
attempt or family participation. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I just want to make this clear because a lot of people bring up ransom and, and I want to make this extremely clear. Neither our family, the Hall family, nor the Ridsdale family at any point, at any point, at any time, did we ask, hint, suggest, urge, prod in any way the government to pay a ransom. That was not ever on the table from a from a from a just a perspective of we don't pay criminals to further their criminal activity. However, you kind of do that in trust that because of course our government has a plan. They're going to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it became very clear they weren't going to do anything, of of course, and I've said this before put yourself in our shoes any family would do what we did which was try to gain a ransom and of course we're discouraged against it because it's illegal to pay terrorists but you know what would anyone do you would you would do that when you know who you think is supporting you has got on the boat and left you know it's interesting because i i remember an american family whose family member was abducted and tortured and murdered, uh, they were similarly told by the American government, by the Obama government, that if you raise a ransom, then you're breaking federal law. So go and threaten the family of the kidnapped victim. Um, it's it's horrendous. But you're, Gord, you and Bernice and families are left with so many questions unanswered. Uh, I don't know how you ever deal with what happened. Uh, I mean, we all, I I suppose time helps. I've heard that a lot. Um, But you haven't been, you haven't been advised of, you haven't been informed, haven't received the information that you deserve, that's due you. No, there's, there's been no closure, Roy, for the families. And it's, you know, it's a pair, I I worked in uh, victim advocacy with the Edmonton Police Service in a previous life. And, and it's important that, that, Victims of violent crime have some closure; otherwise, it just stays with them for the rest of their life. They, mm-hmm. you know, they never get closure, and and that's really the situation now. And uh, again, I think that's a very important part of uh, uh, Petition 696: is that there would be uh, people uh, sensitive to to the victims and and their uh, their needs during during this process. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's just it, it's unfathomable that this is. This is continuing on. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is. Now, is the government obliged in any which way to recognize the petition, to respond to it, uh, or can they s- just do what they've been doing all along? Nothing. It, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's uh, any obligation. Uh, they get they get quite a few of these uh, e-petitions put before them, and uh, most of them just get uh, some of them. I think are quite a bit more trivial than. Uh, this is really critically important. This is important. Oh, absolutely. So uh, we're, we're going to be watching it very closely to see uh, what happens with, with it, if it does get swept under the rug. And, and, and I have, uh, you know, I'm not all that encouraged because some of the response we've received from even opposition parties uh, regarding this, everybody's been very closed-lipped. And we, and we haven't really received any uh, other than uh, Gord Johns, who's the NDP uh, uh, MP up in uh, the, the Mid Highland, Mid Vancouver Island. He's really the only one that stepped forward, and uh, and he he'll be presenting it in the House on uh, on Tuesday. Well, bless him. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
good for him. Uh, Bernice, what what can what can the average person who's listening, you know, what they say? This is wrong. It could be. It could have been any of us. Could be any of us. What can what can what can Canadians individually do? What would you advise them to do? Um, in well, to, to to help with this in right. particular, um, you know, we'd really appreciate any weight anybody can add to this petition. I mean, we've only got a day or two, but you know, sit down and jot down a note to your MP tonight and just say when this is presented on Tuesday, please support it. It's important, um, and and you know. Based on things that are happening in the world, it's not a matter of if, it's, it's, it's when. And, and I do want to say again, we still have Canadians being held hostage. That's right. But, you know, drop your MP a line, drop the Prime Minister a line, and just ask him outright, like, why did you decide to just abandon two Canadians? I mean, for heaven's sakes... You know, our military is, is, is a good military, and they are sent all over the world to help people in peril. And we had two Canadians in extreme peril, and, and that's the day that our government decided to leash them up and say, no, you can't help. And, 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 and they've, you know, the government's got to be questioned about, about that, you know. And, and in particular, you know, when you talk about this, you know, Christian Freeland's uh, speech the other right, day and the, right. the announcement of the money for the, the military. Yeah. I mean, it's all great and well to try and bring our military up to speed and get them into the 21st century and yeah. buy them shiny new helicopters. But if you don't have the political will to get out of their way and let them do let what them do their job, let them the do their job. Of, what's the point of it? But he's, uh, uh, Gord, I'm going to have to jump in because the satellite's going to cut us off. Thank you. We're going to stay in touch with you. Tuesday is the day. Canadians can still get involved. Drop an email to your MP. You guys take care, and we'll we'll, we'll keep talking. Thanks so much, Roy. All the best. Thanks so much, Roy. Take care. Bernice Thomas, Gord Bibby. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.